Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail... Imagine how uncomfortable you would be if you had 100,000 troops sitting on your border in the way that these troops are sitting on the border with Ukraine. Russian troops, tanks, artillery and missiles amassed near the border of Ukraine. Surface-to-air missiles in the country's Far East due to join what Moscow says are military exercises near Ukraine. What Western powers fear may be preparation for war. I don't see Putin changing his course of action. It's getting very aggressive. Uh, the noose is tightening around Ukraine. Invading Ukraine from a, from a Russian perspective is going to be a painful, violent and bloody business. President Putin says the West is overreacting. Moscow is still denying that it has any plans to invade Ukraine, calling all of this Western hysteria. Is all of this sabre-rattling simply a negotiating tactic to bring the Americans to the table and then squeeze concessions out of them? Or is it a precursor to military action? We simply don't know because President Putin is keeping everyone guessing. So are we on the brink of a war in Europe? Well, behind-the-scenes talks show no signs of de-escalation. We look at what's behind the crisis and why New Zealand can't just sit back on the other side of the world and watch. I don't think that it's in New Zealand's interest to have Europe at a situation where it feels it's almost in a a warlike setting. The question is, what comes next? What does Russia do next? What do we need to do to stop Russia from doing something to a NATO member? Robert Ason is Professor of Strategic Studies at Victoria University. He'll explain more about why this matters to New Zealand. But first, how did it come to this? The build-up is occurring sort of, in a way, encircling large parts of Ukraine. So it's not just in one direction. It's, you know, from the east, where, of course, there are separatists who support Russia. It's also from the north, from Belarus. Those are forces that are closer to Kiev, the, the Ukrainian capital. Um, and then there are forces, as you say, you know, offshore. The, the, the total number onshore and offshore seems closer to 130,000. And so it is one of the largest build-ups of armed force that Europe has seen, really, since the Second World War. And given that, that Ukraine was a, a site for some of the most vicious fighting of the Second World War, this is, this is not an area that's, that's had you know, a, a thoroughly peaceful past, and so I think for some it's evoking some, some pretty tragic memories of, of what happened over 70 years ago. But what's behind this? I think, Sharon, that's the, one of the, the big questions here. And I think a lot comes down to what's in Putin's mind here. What, what is he intending? There's the, the external stuff for Russia, which is to say Ukraine is central to its idea of a group of, of neighbouring countries who need to be at, at, at least tolerably favourable of Moscow, if not subservient to it, like in a way Belarus has become. The Kremlin haven't learnt the lessons of history. They dream of recreating the Soviet Union or a kind of greater Russia, carving up territory based on ethnicity and language. You know, Putin wants a, a buffer zone of countries around Russia to, to, in a sense, feel secure, but also to flex his muscles and feel that there is kind of almost the return to a, a greater Russia with imperial kind of aspirations, a Russia that is the dominant European power. They claim they want stability, 
while they work to threaten and destabilize others. We know what lies down that path and the terrible toll in lives lost and human suffering it brings. A Ukraine that's turned uh, to the West and a Ukraine that enters NATO is one of Putin's great fears. So this is, this is it's partly about the external thing. It's about Putin's own sense of Russia's you know, imperial destiny in a way, but also it's his sense of, of, of Russia's security needs. But it's also trying to, to take the clock back a bit to a time uh, when Russia's interests were more prominent, but also where you did not have the expansion of NATO. So at the end of the Cold War, NATO was a much smaller organisation in terms of the range of countries that now belong to it. And most of those countries that now belong to it are either former parts of the Soviet bloc, countries like Hungary and Romania. And also there are a series now of NATO countries who, are, who were former republics of the Soviet Union, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, the three Baltic countries are examples of that. So one of, one of Putin's demands is basically that NATO should withdraw its forces and its support for those parts of, of Europe that used to be under Moscow's sway. To the West, Ukraine is an independent, sovereign nation. That means it has a right to self-determination, free from Russian control. And if it wants to join NATO or any other international alliance, well, that's for it to decide. Russia's view is different. It sees the former Soviet country as historically within its sphere of influence and also strategically important. Crimea was annexed in part to protect Russia's access to the Black Sea. And as for NATO membership, that would be seen as a threat to Russia's core security. That's why President Putin wants NATO to rule out Ukraine ever becoming a member and withdraw its forces. And I don't actually think that, that the NATO countries are hell-bent on getting uh, Ukraine into their, their, their midst as quickly as they can. I think they understand Russia's... Um, insecurity enough to know that that's, that would be a very, very difficult moment. By the same token, they don't want Moscow determining what the choice of Ukraine is and also determining what NATO's choices will be. And I think the idea of drawing back NATO-type you know, forces from, um, you know, from countries that are increasingly worried about Russia, countries like Poland, countries like the, the Baltic uh, states, that's just a no-go zone. And so there is this now this contest you know, who sets the rules about Europe's future? Mm. And uh, can Moscow basically veto whatever um, NATO does in what Russia considers to be its near abroad? And, and NATO is saying, if these, are, if these countries freely choose to belong to us and we extend NATO's security assurances to them, then we have every right to work with them militarily. We have every right to have uh, NATO forces there. And you will see in the last few, you know, few days or so, the, the, the Americans and the British are talking about sending uh, uh, some additional forces. Up to 8,500 U.S. troops now on high alert. If Biden increases troop presence that close to Russia's doorstep, it would amount to a major shift in his approach. After last week, he said a troop buildup hinged on an invasion. And, you know, we're going to fortify our NATO allies. I told him on the eastern flank if, in fact, he does invade. Not large numbers, but additional forces mm. to back up those countries. Mm. So they're not putting additional forces into Ukraine, but, but they're talking about bolstering the situation for countries like Poland and the Baltics and who are, who are understandably nervous about what this, what's going on here. Why is it happening 
now, though? Because, mm. it, I mean, Putin was warning about this last year, wasn't he? So is there mm. any particular reason that this is going on now? I'm sure there just isn't one reason. One, one of them is, is that the Ukrainian leader... Vladimir Zelensky has got Moscow's attention and and his his enthusiasm for seeing if he can move in the direction of NATO and build up those connections with um, with Western European partners and emphasise Ukraine's democratic credentials. It's that Putin sees want, wants to get rid of a, a leadership in Ukraine that is not willing to bow to his wishes, basically, in a, in a crude sense. Mm. A second thing is, is that I wonder if Putin is trying to test the fortitude of the Western alliance. I, I think one of the things that, that both Moscow and China uh, are thinking is that maybe this Western alliance, whether it's, whether it's in Europe or whether it's you know, in the Indo-Pacific, is not as strong as, as Washington would like it to be. And so this may be a way also of trying to fracture that group of countries, which, which, which Putin, I think, sees the less united they are, the more happy he is. And I, I wonder if he believes that he has a greater sense of commitment to doing something and to pushing the boundaries and to taking risks, including through the use of military force than clearly NATO is. Because one thing that Joe Biden has said and that I think other NATO leaders are in unison on is if Russia invades Ukraine, we are not going to respond by going to war with Russia. Um, so Russia can start a war with Ukraine knowing that the NATO countries and the US in particular, they're not going to resist in that violent military way. Right, but if the US and European nations are not going to re- respond with force, why are they sending their troops closer? They are trying to protect some of the members of NATO that are closer to Russia who are worried that an invasion of Ukraine or this intimidation of Ukraine, which is built up and built up and built up, that that threatens their sense of security. Mm. There's also the issue that Putin is not in the strongest domestic position that he's been over the course of his, of his leadership. And so he may also feel that there is a bit of a rallying around the flag effect to be had if, if Russia gets into a conflict, particularly if Russia can say, it's not our fault, you see they're saying all the time, if Ukraine, well, they said in the last couple of days, if Ukraine starts this, it'll be a disaster. So that's part of it. I'm sure Russian domestic politics are part of this too. As you, you've pointed to a real problem, if the Western powers want to deter a Russian invasion, in other words, if they want to make sure that the costs for Russia are too high, and they are basically not willing to use force and they're not willing to use force for a range of reasons, but one of them is simply because, you know, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but it's also that they, they don't want to fight Russia. And so that's, that's part of the dilemma here. But if, if you're trying to deter Russia, what do you do? And one way you, you, you do that is you say, well, look, you, you know, if you do use force against Ukraine, just know that we are, we are sending signals of concrete resolve to our allies our existing NATO allies, and because we know you want to roll NATO commitments back in those neighbouring countries, we are going to send some more, a few more, you know, troops there, and we are going to strengthen those commitments, not weaken them. So they, are, the Western powers, are trying to raise the costs, but they're doing that with with one arm or two tied mm. behind their back. So you see Blinken talk and others, and and the Europeans too talk about massive consequences. But if you but if you're Putin, you're saying, well, 
you may say those are massive consequences, but I'm not sure that I agree. And so there you've got that kind of uh, dynamic going on. But I think what, what the Western powers are trying to do is give Putin a sense that the costs will definitely be high. The plan for a lightning war that could take out Kiev is one that everybody uh, can see. And I think it's very important that people in Russia understand that this could be a new Chechnya. I've been to, to Ukraine several times. I've, I've, I, I know uh, the people of that country uh, a bit. And my judgment is that they will fight. And really, uh, that is not the way the world should be going. What would a war look like? What do you see happening? I mean, Sharon, it's, it's hard because there are so many possible things that could happen here. One of the most severe possibilities is simply that those forces that are to the north will be will be will drive south, and there will also be forces from other other directions as well, uh, and that Russia will want to actually isolate Kiev um, and overturn the government, and possibly, for some period, occupy uh, eastern Ukraine, and make it impossible for Ukraine to to sustain close ties with with its Western European partners, or at least cause such a paralysis that Ukraine ceases to function in the way that it has been politically. But in order to do that, that's a catastrophic conflict. The losses would be awful. Russia would probably start that with cyber attacks, um, trying to dismantle Ukraine's command and control systems. And then also with air attacks to degrade Ukraine's capacity to resist land forces when they come into Ukrainian territory. But there are other options as well. There is the possibility that while sustained pressure around the borders will be maintained, Russian forces will extend even further support to the separatists in eastern Ukraine, quite a way away from the capital, and increase that group of, of what Moscow takes as sort of Russia's supporting areas, and basically, again, encourage an on, almost an ongoing insurgency against um, the Zelensky government. And then there's also... Um, possibilities of attacking from a distance, using force without necessarily sending large amounts of ground forces into, into Ukrainian territory. You know, I think that the difficulty with those more, much more limited scenarios is that is that unless you think that Russia is that is doing all of this around surrounding Ukraine with this massive amount of forces just to put pressure on on Kiev and just to show that Russia means business. It's a remarkable amount of best part of a year of just a slow build up. And, and, and so I, I just, you know, part of me does worry that, that if Putin does decide to use force, it, it could really be a, a very major, major campaign and a major war and, and a war of a war that Europe's not really seen for, 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 for decades. We've been clear. If any Russian military forces move across Ukraine's border, that's a renewed invasion it will be met with swift, severe, and a united response from the United States and our partners and allies. So what would it take to stop Putin, you know, to, to make him turn those troops around? I think if, it, it depends on whether you think actually that Putin wants to do a deal. Uh, you know, because the only deal he seems to want is for where basically NATO and the US are, OK, OK, Ukraine's never going to be a member and we're going to start withdrawing some of our forces um, from around Russia. You, you can have a you know, free pass on that and you can do what you like with Ukraine. I mean, that's, that's not going to happen. So, so, so what would it take? It depends also whether Putin feels that he can 
just through this pressure, pressure buildup, get something happening in Ukraine, destabilize the situation there? Can he achieve a really regime change, if you like, without the use of force? I'm sure that would be his preference. War could still be averted, but the price of the peace may be high. You know, if Biden was to say, use those famous words. No option is off the table. In our view, we continue consulting closely with European counterparts on severe consequences for Russia if it further invades Ukraine. You know, because I think we've heard that language from, from some of America's allies and partners to say, we'll, we'll sanction anything that moves. So any company of interest to the Kremlin and the regime in Russia would be able to be targeted. So there will be nowhere to hide for Putin's oligarchs, for Russian companies involved in propping up the Russian state. If Putin felt that he would be triggering or risk, risk, seriously risk triggering a war with the US and its NATO allies, then he, I think he would think twice. But just remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about two nuclear-armed <laughs> um, adversaries. But I do think that what the, what, what the US and its partners are trying to do in Europe in particular is to say, well, look, we are, we're, we're going to be as unified as we can, and we are going to at least give this a go to try to deter an invasion. And then if an invasion or an attack comes, we will then impose those sanctions. And then hopefully, even if we can't prevent you from attacking, we can make it more difficult for you to sustain what you're doing. And we can hopefully persuade you that you should stop the attack now. But I think a lot comes down to Putin's calculus here. His calculus may be a bit different. The things that the Western countries think that might hurt Russia may not matter that much to Putin in the end. And that's one of the problems is knowing what, what, what values does your adversary hold dear and how can you put pressure on those things. And, and that's, still a, that's still a very difficult assessment to make in this particular situation. Foreign Affairs Minister Nanai Mahusa says New Zealand is very concerned about the situation and Aotearoa strongly supports Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. She says she's closely monitoring the situation. Why does all this matter to New Zealand? I mean, they're so far away. We're a tiny country. Why should we do anything except sit and watch? I think a significant use of force across the borders to try to change the political situation in Ukraine, a sovereign state, a member of the United Nations. It's almost the worst thing that one state can do to another. It's, the, it's the, one of the cardinal rules of the UN system and of the, of the UN Charter, is that states may not use force except for in self-defence in their relations with each other. New Zealand does sometimes talk quite a bit about the, the international rules-based system. Well, this is, a, this is a flagrant challenge to that. I think the second thing is that this has, this has broader geopolitical consequences. You know, if, if, if Putin wants to turn Europe back into a situation where, where Moscow and America are jostling for spheres of influence and with the use of violence by Russia to try to mark out its domain where it has uh, effective authority. You know, if, if we're moving in that kind of direction, um, a lot of European partners of New Zealand are going to find that their security circumstances have, have really changed. And I don't think that it's in New Zealand's interest to have Europe at a situation where it feels it's almost in a, 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 a war-like setting. Um, and where there may, the question is, what comes next? What does Russia do next? What do we need to do to stop Russia from doing something to a NATO member? And I also think that, you know, 
New Zealand does have an interest, maybe not all New Zealanders think this way, but New Zealand does have an interest in, in having a strong United States committed to supporting other democracies. New Zealand wants the EU to work. You want, you want NATO to work. You know, you want uh, Europe to be confident. You want a number of fellow liberal democracies to have confidence in their, in their future. I think the third part is that, you know, in more general sense, do, do, we, want a, do we want a world where the strong bully the weak? That's why it matters. Now, there are other da- downstream consequences. So, for example, if, if Russia invades Ukraine and then sanctions are imposed and Russia, Russia cuts off gas supply to Europe and extensive sanctions go on Russia, you could get re- you know, significant effects on, on world energy markets. And if Russia's shut out of SWIFT, that um, bank transfer system, which is one of the possibilities, then that may also have downstream con- consequences for, for aspects of international you know, financial exchange. So, so in that sense, you know, there could be consequences for New Zealand in terms of what that means for an already high inflation uh, situation. There are obviously those consequences, but I think it's more the, the principles of international politics um, and, and also the geopolitics of it, that small democratic countries having a, you know, at least a reasonable future, that's, I think, important. Right. But what can New Zealand do, though? I mean, Jacinda Ardern has already said that New Zealand doesn't have laws to apply targeted sanctions, apart from sending out a statement, which Nanaima Mahuta has already done, so you're talking about, you know, there'd be a team right now working on taking to to cabinet maybe a list of options. I mean, what would be on this list? How many how many big <laughs> Russian, you know, Putin backed investors do we have in New Zealand? Not yeah. not very many, no. and, we, and we actually couldn't we couldn't really couldn't do that unless they are officials. We couldn't target them. But one thing that has you know done the rounds in media commentary is, is maybe the US will put travel restrictions on Putin. That makes no difference for New Zealand, though, because... Yeah, doesn't... but the thing is, it, it does... I mean, this, yeah, most, I mean, most of these, the, these officials and, and, and the oligarchs and others who the other countries are targeting, New Zealand is not on their... I don't think on the top of their list. No. But, but that's not to say that if they're shut out of other places, you know, yeah. and, and also... You know, there are times when, when New Zealand governments say, well, actually, yeah, our Five Eyes colleagues, uh, you know, maybe moving a bit far ahead of us and we, we might sit it out for this one. Personally, I think that's fine. That you make each judgment on its case, right, on its merits. Mm. And, and, and I don't think you want a situation where every time one of our traditional partners says or does something, New Zealand just jumps up and says, yes, us too. But I think this is one of those us too moments. I, I mean, I really do. And, and I think in that sense, what you're doing is you're showing some sense of, of unity in a concrete sense with your partner. So I think the first thing is is to find the places where New Zealand can work with with partners who see the world relatively similarly or similarly enough so that when there is a cascade of of diplomatic criticism of Russia, we will join that. So that will be five eyes. A second thing clearly on the list is travel restrictions, and the Prime Minister signalled that, as I said. So uh, to restrict, at least for a time, some form of official contact or, or travel, you know, and just to, just to put, put names on a list even if they're not intending to come to New Zealand, and then thinking about what does this mean for our diplomatic interaction with Russia, a demarche, as it's sometimes called. There might be that um, there are things that New Zealand can think about in terms of how it interacts with Ukraine. There will clearly be humanitarian distress as a result of uh, Russian aggression. I think it partly depends on Cabinet's appetite for this. Yeah. Um, and we haven't had a lot of signalling yet, publicly at least, that this is a top priority for for the Adun cabinet. I mean, hopefully in a few weeks, 
people will say, well, that podcast was talking about a, a scenario that didn't eventuate, but I just have that sense that it's ominous. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode and Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Professor Robert Ayson. Kakite anō.